Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. On today's show, we've got a guy notable for his powerful anti-bully PSAs that received international press and his documentary, Leaving God, which won a Hollywood Documentary Film Award. He has also spearheaded over two dozen successful public service ad campaigns and has been personally honored at both the White House and the UN. Most importantly, he shares with me the greatest first name known to humankind. John, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks. Appreciate that intro. I'm pretty sure I've I've used that joke before, but uh, you know I gotta <laughs> never get <laughs> stick old. with what never you know. Never gets old. I'm telling you, it's the best. You can't beat it. Um, so, John, you uh, you how did you relate to? I asked this to so many guests, but I think it's a good question to you know kind of get a baseline. How did you relate to Christianity the first 18 years of your life? The way most Catholics in my area did, I suppose. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the family I was brought up with and or by and the region I lived in. Um, so as a Catholic growing up in the 60s, which dates myself, um, we basically went to church on Sunday and, uh, well, it was more than that because it wasn't just going to church on Sunday. When I was old enough to go, I started catechism and I'm trying to think exactly how old I was, but it was pretty young. I'm thinking like six or seven, maybe they stick you in catechism. Do you know what that is? I was a uh, Protestant catechized. So yes. <laughs> catechized. Okay. So you're, you're an ex member of the club. Yeah. So, I mean, that that you know when you're when you're that age and you go once a week to these uh places where they kind of just program you with the stuff that just at that age i mean it doesn't make sense now i can only imagine can only imagine the sense i tried to make out of it when i was 6 or 7 years old um so that was that was a pretty early experience with religion and i didn't really i mean the things i took away from that was that there was this guy named jesus and he was the son of god and he died on the cross for my sins because i'm a sinner and if he didn't do that i would go to hell and you know the basic tenets i guess of christianity heaven and hell and the 10 commandments and all that stuff so i was indoctrinated uh in that stuff at at that age and then uh went to church with my parents once a week and you'll laugh at this that was so so long ago john that um things were in latin uh back oh, yeah. then yeah, yeah yeah so um i don't know whether it was 50 or 60 percent of it was stuff that wasn't even in a language that i understood so that was another just weird experience and of course 
nothing that I look forward to going to, but just a day, a weekly obligation. We had to, you know, the worst part of it was I had to dress up. I, I think I, you know, I had to put a jacket and tie on. I mean, things were crazy back then. It was very formal and just a very solemn experience back then. So nothing I looked forward to. And then um, the only other experience I can, I can, uh, share that was under the umbrella of religion was the three years of parochial junior high that a part of which was a class in religion. So uh, my religion education continued through that for three years. Gotcha. Yeah. And for the listener who might not know about catechism, two things I related to is the catechism thing and also the dressing up for church because I went to more traditional churches growing up. Um, And yeah, man, putting on that tie was like my least favorite thing. Um, Yeah, but catechism is fascinating because it, it is it is just indoctrination. Like there's really no two ways about it because it's question and answer form. So to this day, if someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, John, what is sin? I would be like, sin is any want and or conformity, transgression of the law of God or whatever. Like exactly. it's 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 being programmed to give a certain answer for a certain question. Right. Um, how did you uh, how did you view the non-Catholic world as you were growing up? Hmm. Well, um, some of my best friends were Jewish. And I thought they were really cool, cool friends. Um, I mean, again, they were close friends of mine. So um, I, I didn't really, to be honest, I don't think I gave it a lot of thought. I didn't really think like, oh my God, they're going to hell because they're not a Catholic. But um, the times that I was in school, school, whether it be a religion class in junior high or catechism, I'm sure that issue came up once or twice, you know, what happens to to people who aren't Catholic, you know, um, because we were taught that this was really the the only religion that is going to enable you to get to heaven. So um, I just digested that um but really didn't give it a lot of thought that's that's definitely healthier than it could have been um i uh you know it's funny you say that because you know i i grew up protestant but i had uh two of my closest friends were catholic and you wouldn't think that you know if you're not a christian you'd be like oh so y'all probably had a lot in common but it's like no you have like spats all the time um and one of the one of the spats me and a, a catholic friend would have is uh he told me, I was like, so do you think I'm going to hell, you know, since I'm not Catholic? And he said, well, Catholics have this thing where they believe that if you follow Catholic doctrine, even if you don't call yourself Catholic, that you're Catholic and you don't know it. And I was like, what? <laughs> but it, but I looked it up and sure enough, that's it, even in catechism. They teach that um, right. that there's plenty of people who are Catholic, but they just don't know it. Yeah, I mean, I, I even even though uh, I was pretty young, a lot of this stuff to me just wasn't making a whole lot of sense, and I just kind of went along with the program. But uh, even then, I think I was kind of scratching my head 
with a lot of this stuff that was just kind of force fed to me. Yeah, same. I I I sometimes recount, you know, uh I think I was either 7 or 8 and we were singing hymns in church and I looked around and I think it was the first time I had this thought and the thought was uh are we all faking this? Like that that was kind of my, my where my brain went. I was like what if like I'm being punked, you know? <laughs> like what right. if this is all for show? Um and yeah, I don't think that questioning spirit really ever went away. You know, I think if I was brought up in a different environment with parents who were more hardcore religious, it would be very different. But um, neither one of my parents were that way. Uh, I think they just did what they understood to be what they needed to do as good Catholic parents, which was put your kid in uh, catechism so he could get his first communion. And then that was followed by um, confirmation. So I wasn't done with the programming after catechism. I think there was another couple couple more years of that programming to uh, enable me to get my confirmation. I'm still not, you know, I'm still not sure what some of the stuff means, but you know, my parents just kind of stuck us in the program and just that that was about it. We re- didn't really discuss it at home. Mm. Yeah. That I I've, I've actually heard this from other people who have who have grown up Catholic too that it's almost like uh it's almost just something you do, right? Like it's not necessarily a uh, something you submit your whole life to quite as dramatically as, you know, a lot of evangelicals teach. Right. right. Um, but it but it but it's still kind of automatic, you know. It's just like, well, you just do this. This is what we do. Right. Um do you, did you did you have any plot points maybe where you started making your faith your own? Well, uh kind of because the older I got, the less religion was working for me or making sense to me. So during my defiant teenage years, I really kind of gave my parents a lot of um, pushback about going to church. And uh, for a few years during that period, I felt like I was kind of in limbo when it came to anything religious which then, but I still believed in God. And that's when I think I started feeling the need to figure out my own understanding of God. Right. And, um, when I, uh, was on my own, I think I started checking out other churches and exploring things that were, um, not Catholic. And I I think one of the things that kind of got me to reevaluate the whole thing was when I started uh, following a couple of TV ministers in my early 20s that I really liked because their message was very different than what I had been uh, listening to uh, as a Catholic growing up. They were much more uh, upbeat and positive and um, affirming. One of them was Robert Schuler, who was broadcasting out of the Crystal Cathedral in Southern California. He had a week, weekly program. And occasionally he would have some celebrities being in Southern California. He'd have some pretty interesting celebrities on there. But it was a whole different vibe than what I had been brought up with. And I, I really I really liked it. And then after that, I um, started following another minister uh, on TV. Uh, this is I was in Chicago at the time, and that was Norman Vincent Peale, 
And once again, I really liked his sermons. He was actually, I mean, he would actually crack jokes and he was, he was actually very funny, self-deprecating and very, again, very, very different than my indoctrination to religion. So that was one of the first things I did when I moved to New York. I said, I got to find this church that Norman Vincent Peale is the minister of, which turned out to be the Marble Collegiate Church uh, that I ended up getting involved with for about 20 years. And what I liked, what I liked, John, and this was very different, I really liked this whole aspect of fellowship. I mean, I didn't even, that word wasn't even part of the Catholic lingo. Because growing up Catholic, you go to church, you basically look down, everything is dark, everyone's wearing black. You you walk in quietly and you walk out quietly. There's really no engagement. And when I, uh, 20 years or 10 years later, when I discovered Marble Church, there were bright lights and people were smiling and saying, how you doing today? And there was this great coffee hour afterwards where people were smiling and uh, walking up to you and having a conversation with you. And there were a lot, I was single at the time. There were a lot of cute girls and there was, there was coffee and donuts and it was a whole different experience, which I really liked. Yeah, that makes sense. I, you know, we were just talking about our mutual friend, uh, Rachel Roberts, and I just had a episode with her about um, community. And that's like one of the biggest things people actually miss when they um, like leave Christianity later on is that, is that community or fellowship. Yeah. Is the word they most commonly use. Um, yeah, I, I'll admit, like, I miss it sometimes, right? There's something, um, there's something really, like, wholesome and, like, hard to find anywhere else, really, um, at, at least at first glance, right? right. Is this right. is super, like, welcoming community. So that makes total sense, especially because, so I've attended mass before. Um, when I was in college, I liked going to evening mass just to, because I was in a big time evangelical bible college so it was nice to just get something different um and mass was like it, i liked it because it was an occasion but i was like man this is a bummer like <laughs> this is not happy times uh, yeah. at the catholic church the right. all the music is like dirgy um right. And, right. The and the oh, yeah. priest all have this weird voice that kind of puts you to sleep and yeah, yeah. it's a. Uh, it's a different experience. So that makes sense that you would kind of gravitate towards that um, community. So for you, it was more about the people around you than than necessarily what you were believing in your own head. Well, I also really enjoyed the sermons. Um, Norman Vincent Peale at the time was in his uh, mid to upper 80s. So I only had about two years of listening to his sermons, which I, I just loved. Uh, but the minister that followed followed him was was also good in his own way. He had a different style, but I I also really liked the what he was saying and how he presented it. And unlike a lot of the things I heard in Catholic Church, it wasn't really heavy on uh, scripture. A lot of it was just more like kind of positive psychology. I don't know how much you know about Norman Vincent Peale and the Marble Church, but uh, a whole uh, Norman's whole foundation is built on the power of positive thinking. He wrote a I'm book. I'm very familiar. Yes, <laughs> oh, he, this concept. Right, and uh, his book was one of the all-time bestsellers. So, consequently, his sermons and the sermons given by the minister who followed him were. Uh, a lot of positive psychology. So 
as much as I enjoyed the fellowship uh, that I experienced there, I, I did enjoy the sermons as well. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, normally this is when I would ask someone, uh, like what made them leave, but I think that topic, having watched your documentary, I think, uh, I think that topic will come up as we talk about marketing. (laughs) Um, so let's, let's talk about marketing a little bit and then, uh, we'll see where this goes. So first off, how did you get into marketing? Well, I studied it in college and it was actually, uh, advertising. Um, I, I was always uh, talented artistically. Uh, my mom uh, was an artist and a painter and actually taught art uh, in her 20s briefly. So I, I kind of was weaned um, by a, a um, artist and an art, art instructor. And as a result, was pretty talented um, artistically, but didn't know how to make a career or didn't really give a lot of thought about that being a career until... I um I uh was called uh was asked to uh meet with one of my uh instructors after class. I was for two years I was majoring in undecided and took a graphic design class at a liberal arts college I was attending. And uh after I don't know, fourth or fifth week of that graphic design class, the teacher said, uh I need to speak with you after class, which of course never sounds good. And she looked at me and she said, uh, have you decided what you want to do for a profession? To which I replied, not really. To which she replied, well, you are really talented. And if you don't mind, I really think you ought to consider pursuing something in, in uh, graphic arts or visual communications as a career because it would be a waste if you didn't. So I don't know what I would have done, John, had I not gotten that piece of advice. Um, And she actually said, you know, if you don't mind giving me giving you some advice, I would get the hell out of this college and transfer to a college that is more suited for that kind of a career. To which I replied, do you have any in mind? She said, Syracuse University, which coincidentally happened to be where my dad graduated. So that was a very easy sell. (laughs) Since my dad was footing the bill. Oh, yeah. That was an easy sell. But Syracuse, uh, to her point, had all kinds of uh, majors in architectural design and fashion design and illustration and tons and tons of things related to visual communication. And uh, then the question became, well, which one do I choose? And I met with someone who I thought was a guidance counselor. And he, he said, listen, kid, if you want to make money and you, you have talent, uh, creative talent, you go into advertising now, take out this card. I filled it out for you with advertising classes. Take it to that woman. She'll sign you up. So I, I did what he said. And I asked the woman, I said, who was that guy? And she said, oh, he's chairman of the advertising department. So that's how I ended up uh, going into advertising as a major, and as as you uh, uh, you don't you don't know this, but um, my first experience uh, in advertising with my first advertising course was not a very positive one. Um, I actually made a video about that, uh, which you have not seen, but I was doing so badly in the class, John, that uh, toward the end of the the class, and this is 
halfway through my junior year, after just choosing advertising as a major, uh, the instructor uh, told me to see him after class. And in this case, it was not good uh, that he did that because he looked at me and said, listen, um, what's your major again? Is it illustration? I said, no, it's actually advertising. He said, well, let me give, give you some advice. You you really don't have much talent and you should definitely not go into advertising as a career. And he what said, everyone gonna, wants to hear. You don't and, have much yeah. talent. <laughs> and he said, listen, I'll give you two two choices. You could ignore what I, I'm telling you and uh, stick it out for the next three weeks and and deal with the grade that I'm going to give you, which of course sounded pretty ominous. Or he said, you could just drop the class right now and, and uh, you it'll be like you never took the course at all. So it didn't really feel like a great choice, especially considering that I'm not the kind of guy that gives up easily. But uh, the, he kind of put the writing on the wall as far as what my grade was going to be. And I didn't want to have to go back to my dad and tell him that the, I flunked out of the first advertising course that I took. So I dropped the class. Um, so that was my first experience uh, pursuing advertising as a career. And fortunately, after a lot of real soul searching over that Christmas break, I decided uh, to try the course with the same course, different instructor. Because basically, I thought the guy was an asshole. And sounds like he was. <laughs> uh, it. You know, it's it's hard to have perspective, John, when when you're being taught by someone who works on Madison Avenue and flies up from New York City to teach a class in advertising. We basically look at him as uh, as God, to use a, a funny analogy for this podcast. But but, you know, he was he was a rock star and you just assume that, you know, nothing and he knows everything. So it was not an easy thing to hear from this guy, um, even though I did think he was an asshole. But, you know, thank thank goodness I did decide to give it another crack with a different instructor because it made all the difference. I think I got an A minus by the uh, new instructor. And, you know, I was on my way to, to gra graduating and pursuing advertising as a career after that. Gotcha. Yeah, that's uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did because uh, that's that's, you know, it does seem to be something you really enjoy, so it's good that you didn't give up on it. I I know from the documentary you had a uh, kind of an experience with a church that where your your advertising and marketing skills kind of uh, the rubber was able to meet the road. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, funny thing, you know, um, in advertising you rarely get a chance to work on a product or service that you're excited about you usually work for a big agency and you just get stuck on selling fish sticks or ding dongs or tires or whatever accounts that agency has you know and it's not that they're bad products but you know getting excited about tires is is hard to do so it was pretty wild when um i had coffee with one of the associate ministers at the church about 10 years or so after I had been going to it. And he asked me if the head minister knew what I did. And I was didn't really understand why he was asking the question, because um, <clears throat> this guy, we would have coffee occasionally, and I would talk about 
at the time I, I, I was running my own ad agency, Madison Avenue ad agency. I think I might've even invited him up to my agency one, one time because I was proud of the fact that I was running my own business. And he, I think he saw my awards around the office and was impressed by that. But I, I didn't understand why he was asking me if the head minister knew what I did until he told me that the, the church was considering doing some advertising. And for that reason, he thought that I should be on the radar of the head minister. So I, my reply was, well, you know, feel free to mention me if, if you think that would be a good thing to do. And uh, a few weeks later, I found myself uh, sitting with the head minister of Marble Church in my office talking about the possibility of doing an ad campaign for the church, which just blew my mind. He mentioned that um, his financial guy had uh, done an analysis of their finances and had determined that they did have some funds that they could um, steer toward marketing or a- and advertising the church. When the minister told me that they had a, a budget of $150,000 and what would I do with it, I definitely told him I would give it some thought and get back to him. That's crazy to me. I mean, when I not when not in the moment, but first off, how big was like estimated number of members of this church? It was pretty crazy to me too because uh, I was not aware that the church had any marketing budget. I knew that they would run a tiny little ad in the New York Times every week, where there's a section uh, in the Times, I guess, local churches or something. So if you're a business guy doing coming in in New York and you're there for a weekend and you want to go to church, you could maybe find it through this uh, one and a half inch by three inch ad that just basically gave their address and what that week's sermon was about. But I wasn't aware they were doing anything. Well, they were actually they did some radio advertising. They um, they would broadcast their sermons on a local radio or a syndicated radio station. So I think they might've done some radio ads on that radio station, but uh, $150,000 was a much more significant budget than I ever thought uh, I'd be discussing with them. So yeah, it was pretty crazy to me too. Oh, you asked me how big they are. Uh, No, I, I don't think it would, it would qualify as a, as a Joel Olstein mega church. Um, the, the church was pretty packed back then on Sundays. I don't think it's nearly as packed today, but I think they claimed a membership of 3000 people. I mean, this was a Manhattan church. So, so but that's so for average. I mean, that's like higher than average, but that's not crazy. Like that's not a huge church by any stretch. Right. Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, in New York City, there's there's tons of other churches that compete with them. But, <clears throat> you know, I, I just I just um, all I knew is that they had a budget of one hundred and fifty K and he was asking me what I would do with it. So <laughs> at that point, I guess, I mean, if you break it down, that's like five dollars per member, I guess. Right. So it's not I, I guess it's possible, but it's still <laughs> because I mean, a church's budget is obviously comprised of whatever people give the church. Well, you know, one, one thing I learned later on, I don't think I knew it at the time, John, but Marble Collegiate Church was one of the very, very first churches uh, in New York City. 
it uh, it is defined as a um, Dutch reform church. And as you may gotcha. know, if you know your history, Manhattan was formed by the Dutch. It was originally called New Amsterdam. And I believe it was Peter Stuyvesant, Peter Stuyvesant or Peter Minuet, one of the, one of the two, or maybe both of them were these Dutch guys that I think one or both of them were also ministers. So um, the the church, a lot of the money that Marble Church has came from the fact that they own Manhattan real estate. Ah, there, gotcha. There's a collegiate church corporation. And again, I didn't learn this until years later, but um, it's not just the property that the church is on. I think the church owns a lot of property uh, downtown New York. Gotcha. I don't know if they still do, if they had to sell it off. Yeah. I know this was true back then and is still true to some extent today. Like churches usually get pretty good real estate deals because they're seen as good for the community in a lot of places. So, uh, you know, sometimes some of the red tape is uh, cut for them. Yeah. I don't know if that's the case with this church, obviously. But, but if but... you can imagine uh, owning property from, from the, um, trying to think when Manhattan was formed. Um, I know that the collegiate church started in 1854, I believe. So I'm sorry, that's when the building, that's when the actual church building was erected. But I think the the history goes back, may go back to the 1600s. Again, whenever the Dutch uh, um, settled Mm -hmm. Manhattan. So just imagine the value of real estate that was purchased for a yeah. few hundred dollars in the 1600s, what, what that is right. worth today. So just, you know, if you, in, if you invest that money and you're living off of the dividends on that, you, you, you probably have some free bucks to spend on an ad campaign. Right. And with East Coast churches specifically, you know, just states that have been, you know, the original 13 or whatever, there's some old money. <laughs> there's, exactly. some, there's some old money across the board. Um, yeah, that's crazy. So you get this $150,000. What do you want to do with it? Right. And, you know, that doesn't. So the question is, you know, with um, generally for every dollar dollar of advertising spent, 85% of that goes to the media buy. This this is now I'm giving you a course in marketing. I'm here for it. Yeah. Um, most people don't understand how ad agencies make money. But, you know, initially they were agents which is why they, they're called agencies. They were agents between a client that wanted to advertise and, and the media channels, which back then were like newspapers um, and then radio and then TV. And so they would, they would be the liaison between the uh, store owner and the newspaper uh, who wanted to do an ad in the newspaper and they would negotiate with the newspaper and the newspaper would charge a, a fee, a media for a space in the paper or the magazine. So when I was in the business back then, about 85% of every dollar went to the media, be it radio, TV, um, or print. Um, and the other 15% would go toward uh, the agency's work coming up with the concept and producing it and, and, and that sort of a thing. So um, the question for me became, so what, what media channels am I going to be? What's, first of all, what's the creative going to be? And usually the media 
is is determined by the advertising. Um, first of all, who you know, I had to really think like a marketing person, even though I came up on the creative side. When I was running my agency, I really had to kind of uh, switch hats and really think like a marketing person and a media person and figure out things like, well, who are we speaking to? Who is the audience? And what are the media channels that are going to uh, interface with that audience? So that's what I had to do when I was given the um, opportunity to respond and uh, tell him what he should do with that 150K. So basically I had to put together a media plan and say, well, if this is your audience, these are the media channels that I think you should, you should be advertising on. Um, and even though he didn't ask for it, um, I, I could not resist the opportunity to actually show him some creative work because I didn't want to just go there and say, well, these are the media channels. I wanted to hopefully show him some ads that he could get excited about because I knew I wasn't the only one he was talking to with that kind of a budget. He's not just going to uh, have one company show him ideas. He's going to be uh, having several companies. And I actually knew at, at least one uh, other person that they were talking to. So I knew it was a competition. I knew it was a shootout. So I was hoping if I came up with some, uh, high impact creative that that would help me get the account. Yeah. So, so you're, if I can put myself in your shoes, you were, you were thinking, let's make this exciting, right? Like, let's make the, was, was that kind of your angle? What, what were you thinking of as far as like strategy? That was always, that's, you know, when I had my agency, that was kind of my, my mantra. You can't, you can't just, um, if you're, if you're trying to get, people to buy your product or service, you can't just tell them what your product or service is. You have to get them excited because telling them, informing them is not enough to get them to take the action that you want to take. If you don't get them excited about it, you're not going to sell anything. So um, I've always believed that throughout my career. And that was the mantra uh, on which I, I always uh, present work and come up with creative work for my my clients, and because I was, I th I, th I think I had a, an advantage because uh, not only was I familiar with the church, having been involved with it the way I had for for ten years, but I really had a passion for it. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier. I mean, it's rare in advertising if you're working for an agency that you have the opportunity to work on a product or service that you could really get excited about. But I really um, had a passion for Marble Church, and I was really, really thrilled that I had an opportunity. I mean, in my wildest dreams, I could not have imagined being asked to come up with an ad campaign uh, with a $150,000 budget. So I just I, I dropped everything that I was working on, John, for two weeks and, and thought about nothing else but this because there was no way I was, I was uh, not going to win this business. And, and that's what prompted that with, with that mindset that I, uh, I, I came up with actually two campaigns. Uh, one that I thought was pretty safe that uh, because, you know, it is a church and I was afraid that if I presented anything too edgy, I might lose the opportunity. So I presented, I wanted to give him a choice and I, you know, I did plain and fancy and I was thrilled 
thrilled and just in disbelief when um, a week after I presented both both campaigns, he said that he wanted to go with the one that was more edgy. Can can you just briefly like describe some of what made it kind of edgy? Like, was it like what what were, were the ads like? Come to church and take a drink, or like how, how how edgy was it? What what was kind of the style of the campaign? If you saw the campaign, I mean, if you saw the the documentary, I I did uh, mention it, uh, and I don't want to give away the whole film, but since you asked, first of all, you have to understand the directive I was given by the minister when he said he wanted to do an ad campaign. He specifically said that he felt that the church needed to do a better job of attracting younger people, which is really smart of him to say that um, because churches aren't going to grow if you don't get the young people. And uh, at the time I was, I wasn't young, but I wasn't old. I mean, I was, I was, I think I was maybe actually I was in my, I was in my late thirties, maybe. So I certainly, I think his target audience was people in their twenties. So I was, the point is I was young enough to um, understand what might um, appeal to a younger audience. And I think that's one of the, the reasons why he, he was interested in talking to me. And I think he realized that in order to appeal to them, that you have to be, you can't be conservative, especially when you're it's talking true. to New Yorkers. I mean, New York right. is, you know, I've lived in Atlanta, I've lived in Chicago, and there's there's nothing like um, the attitude of New Yorkers. I mean, I love both of those cities, but New York, I don't know how much time you spent there, but New York has its own vibe, and it's very, um, it's very edgy. It's very in your face. And if you're speaking to um, 20-something Manhattanites, you got to speak to them in a way that they're going to respond to. And I really felt like um, I knew how to do that. So I just started coming up with uh, lines, headlines that were um, a little bit edgy, you know, mostly playful, but, but, you know, um, would make someone smile or think. The whole idea was if they're seeing this on a subway, which is where a lot of these ads appeared, I wanted them to look at those those posters and feel something. Again, either go either go, huh, or or smile because there was kind of a a, a, a clever twist to it. For example, now that's you know, this was this was uh first year we did it was ninety-eight. And back in ninety-eight. Um, spirituality was kind of a big thing. A lot of the top 10 best-selling books on the New York bestseller list had uh, kind of spiritual themes. Remember like The Course in Miracles? Do you remember that book? And and maybe you uh, don't. No. I mean, it was, you know, you probably weren't even born then, but... Uh, <laughs> I was born. <laughs> I was born, but I was young. You were two, right? So, four, so, four. So, I was four. Four. Okay. So in the late nineties, there's this thing called the course in miracles. And as a top telling best-selling book, um, a woman by the name of Marion uh, Williamson had a book that now was, we all know her. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Uh, um, yeah. I think her book, it had, again, it was very spiritual, uh, some, something about love. Um, but again, it was very, it was kind of like pseudo pseudo Christianity or pseudo spirituality. Right. right. Um, 
so um there were and there were uh, oh um chicken soup for the soul i think was around that right so there were a lot mm-hmm. of things around soul and spirituality and you know um and and it was like uh bible light for lack of a better word but they were trying to you know leverage uh spiritual themes in a way that would appeal to a broader audience so one of my first law ads was now that spirituality is cool here's where to get some that was the big bold headline and on the bottom was a marble collegiate church with a little um illustration of the church and you know just a couple lines saying uh the time that their uh church services were on sunday and that sort of that that kind of a thing um another uh ad said uh make a friend in a very high place and people who um are familiar with dale carnegie uh know his book how to make friends and influence people and you know talking about you know connections new york city is a city all about making friends and making connections so i thought that was kind of a uh, apropos ad for new york make a friend in a very high place and we actually had that headline on an airplane banner as well so one time over a giants football game if you looked up in the sky you would see an airplane banner that said make a friend in a very high place with the church website and this was 1998 so websites were kind of a new thing so to have a church website with that headline flying over giant stadium was a pretty uh press-worthy thing and in fact it did get some press in the new york times but another headline wow. we did was you know another headline was um uh our product actually does perform miracles which i thought was <laughs> that's a, a pretty very, good one that's my favorite one so far that's pretty good a very tongue-in-cheek play on you know advertising and again i mm-hmm. you know i try to i try to you know do it with a, a tongue-in-cheek sense of humor um Another one was, uh, you don't have to be a sinner to attend our church, but it helps. <laughs> you see, I like it. So this is what's good about all this. It's it's almost subversive. And that's kind of like churches don't usually subvert themselves like that. So the, the, it probably felt really new and innovative to to do all this. Didn't oh, it? it was it was fun because, listen, I understood the mindset of someone who's out, you know, partying around town and then is being asked to go to church on Sunday. And. I, I could relate to people would say, listen, I'm not a church kind of person. And, you know, listen, if you knew what I was doing last night, you would knew that, know that I shouldn't go, I should not be going near a church on Sunday morning. And it was exactly uh, those people that I wanted to, to talk to and say, you know, we welcome you. We don't care what you do, you know? Um, so I, I thought that was one of the best ads. Um, and of course the minister said, we can't run that ad. And I finally convinced them to run the ad. Um, and uh, about a month later, I asked him how it was going. And he said, oh, things are great. People love the campaigns. They see them on the subways. They're talking about them. I said, well, that's great. And he said, John, yeah, but you know the one they talk about the most? I said, let me guess, the Sinner ad. He said, yeah, the Sinner ad. They really like that one. So I was really pleased because um, – in advertising, it's not just a matter of how creative you can be. It's really a matter of, are you doing thinking, something that's going to get the results that you want? And there's no guarantee whenever you come up with creative, you don't really know uh, how effective things are going to be. You just, if you've done it a while, you can, you can um, 
take a pretty good guess of whether or not it's going to work. And so to get that feedback was great. But I think one of the best ads that that I came up with, John, was one that um, really showcased what Marble was all about, because I don't think there were any churches in New York and maybe the country that had as many things to offer, programs, groups, uh, presentations, um, that that Marble Church had. Uh, they had probably two dozen different programs and groups and activities that served their congregation. For example, if you were uh, divorced, they had a divorce recovery group. If you were single, they had a singles group. If you were married, they had a married group. If you were an entrepreneur, they had an entrepreneur's group. They had a, a help, something called the helpline, which was a 24-hour crisis line that you could be volunteer to, to, uh, to be on. So, uh, you know, that served people who just knew about it and had nothing to do with the church and just had a problem that they wanted to, um, to talk about. The church engaged people to train them. I was on it, actually, for a couple of years, went through 50 hours of training to be a volunteer on that helpline. So they had all kinds of programs and activities that if you weren't into church or the, you know, listening to the sermon on Sunday or you had, you had other plans, you can still find uh, something at the church that you could get involved with. And most people, when they think of church, they just thought of the, ser- the Sunday morning sermon, have no idea that there's all these other uh, aspects to get involved with. So one of the headlines, one of the ads I came up with, and these were posters, these were on the subway, so they were probably two and a half feet by three feet uh, uh, deep wide, uh, said, um, if you're looking to feed your soul, we've got a great menu. That was the headline. And then in three columns was a list of all these various programs and activities that the church had to offer. So there you are sitting on a subway for five or 10 or 15 minutes, right? And you look up and you really have a chance to uh, look at that ad if it's in front of you and see all the different things that the church has to offer. So um, I think a lot of people, and they did do some uh, follow-up testing of people that came to church to find out how they, how they found out about it, uh, was a direct result of that ad, which showcased uh, all that the church had the all that the church had to offer. Isn't that so fascinating that nowadays, though, you go to any church website, like any church website, and they'll have a similar menu, like literally, of uh, of different things you can. That's isn't that crazy to think? You know, not that long ago, that wasn't as common, and now you really can't have a church without those kind of programs. Yeah, well, realize, John, this was 25 years ago. So even though there may have been, I mean, websites didn't even exist until a couple of years before that. So yes, it's true now, but I think Marble was really um, ahead of its time. Um, I mean, they had an LBGT group back then. So wow. that I mean, is ahead how, of its time. <laughs> how many churches in 1998 had that as one of the things that you could get involved with? So that's what I mean. Wow. That's interesting. Um, did you, so man, is there, is there a difference that, you know, you have a lot of experience in advertising. Is there a, have you noticed there's a big difference between advertising like a product and advertising a church? 
in really, I mean, the same principles apply. You have to understand exactly who your audience is. They're basic marketing principles. You have to excite them. You have to touch them on an emotional level. So in that sense, it's just the same as selling any product or service, um, even though um, churches are you know, kind of unique in that they are selling an invisible product, in essence, that does everything and costs nothing. Right? Yeah. That, you, and, and of course, everyone's scam alert radar goes off when, when it's a product, right? When it's advertised like a product. But when it's a church, you don't, you don't think anything sinister is going on typically. I, I, I wouldn't think. Well, that's why I got so excited about it because, you know, when I started thinking about it and, and tried to come up with some ads promoting the church, uh, as I continued to brainstorm about it, um, I thought, well, yeah, I'm selling in church, but in essence, what am I selling? And I said, in essence, I'm selling a product that is that does everything. It solves every problem you have. It's available 24-7, and it doesn't cost you a dime. How cool is that to be advertising kind of that e- kind of a product? You would think it's an easier gig, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, which is why I came up with ads like uh, make a friend in a very high place. You know, that 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 was a one of the ads we did for the church. But in essence, it's selling God. So um, that's that that was a very, very unique opportunity, which at, at the time I got very excited about. And I think it's one of the reasons why the church, uh, why the campaign got the the press that it did. Um, one, because they were they were advertising and and investing some significant dollars into it but perhaps more importantly because of the campaign that they were willing to run that was you know doing these edgy uh ads yeah do you, do you think uh, i mean i i've that's all correct me if i'm wrong that's the only church you advertised for right yes okay but in general, do you think that churches like, uh, you know, you can you can guess since you can't know everything, but like, do you think churches with their marketing and advertising nowadays, or maybe as it's developed, do you think they're trying to get more people in their buildings or they're trying to convert people or maybe a bit of both? They're trying to get more people to pay them money and they don't really care how they do that. Um, and most of the people that are going to pay them money, as I'm sure Joel Olstein knows, is they just have to know about them and uh, believe in what they're saying and find a way to send in their donation. So there's no more powerful way to do that than ha- being on sun, you know, being on uh, national TV every week. So. Uh, even though Joel has one of the the largest, if not the largest, attendance of any church on Sunday, I have no doubt that ninety percent of the income he gets is not from those people that are there on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely that's interesting, right? Because I think of like the smaller churches, right, who maybe their marketing budget is almost laughable, you know. Um, and they're spending money, 
you know, and and most churches like care about spending their money to some extent. And and I'm always just so curious about what their motivation is, right? Because is the is it yeah if it's a if it's an investment you know to get more money back or if it's a if it's to get people I, it it seems so fuzzy to me what the goals of churches are sometimes with advertising. Well, the more the more people you have, the more money you're going to make, right? The more people you engage, whether whether in the pews or virtually, the more money you're going to have. So it's 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 kind of a chicken and an egg thing, right? Yeah, and the, that's where it starts to get a little ethically questionable. I think. Um, I don't know. Here, here's one way to ask the question: uh, Do you think Jesus would approve of the way churches are marketed now? <laughs> you know, I'm not the right person to ask that question. If you want to ask me about my <laughs> my advertising uh, experience or my documentary, uh, I'd be happy to answer it. But you know, I'm in no position to to speak for Jesus. Fair enough. Fair enough. I like to speak for Jesus a lot. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, just having read him, I mean, like the, the you know, the stories of Jesus that come to mind are like, you know, flipping tables when they were trying to get money in church and stuff like that. Um, you know, just just going by by their book, of course. Um, I, if, it's, that, if, it that, seems... if that story is even true. Sure, sure, sure. But but yeah, it's just kind of funny, right? Because that's supposedly the basis of all this though, right? right like right. even if even if churches, you know, kind of sprout out and go to other different things, like their basis is like, well, this is the message of Jesus. And then you're like, the message of Jesus is to is to run ads to get people to give you money. You know, that's what Jesus, Jesus to... wants you to Jesus want, you know, you, you... Okay, I'm not going to speak for Jesus, but I'm putting myself in the shoes of a minister, putting myself in Joel Olstein's shoes. Um, jo- Jesus wants people to know about him. Jesus wants you to read his words. Jesus wants you to follow, uh, follow him. And that's what you do by listening to me every Sunday and getting involved with our church. Yeah. Well, you certainly know how to make the pitch, don't you? <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. rocket science. You just, you know, you just spend 10 minutes listening to Joel and, you know, it, that's what every minister is basically using Jesus as the hook. And, you know, you could, everyone, this is the thing about that, right? Every minister interprets the Bible and scripture and Jesus's words in a way that best suits them. Right. It's true. And, uh, you know, here's a, here's a kind of weird spin on that. You know, I grew up in a more kind of traditional church, um, that I don't think, I don't think they did any market. I mean, they had a website and it was a trash website, but they had a website. Um, but I can't think of any other kind of marketing they did. And their rationale was they were like, um, Oh, we just trust, pray and trust God that He'll bring people into our doors. Um, Good luck with that. Do you, do you think? Right. <laughs> hey, but sometimes you know, sometimes they still find ways to grow. But is that really honest, or are they just word of mouthing it? Is it just a different type of advertising? You'd have to ask them. Yeah, I mean, well, I'd rather not talk to them anymore. But <laughs> listen, I, you know, yeah. I think I think um, 
the question you're asking me is actually a good question as one of the questions I was curious when I was working with the head minister of Marble Church. I was I was I was really uh surprised that he was as marketing savvy as he was. Because you know, to your point, and this was again twenty-five years ago, um I was really curious how he was so marketing savvy. And his response was, well, you can't be um, Norman Vincent Peale's understudy for 25 years and not pick up some of his marketing acumen. He said, you wouldn't believe it, John, but Norman was running ads um, in the 20s when he was a, a, a junior minister at a church in Syracuse, New York. He would run teaser ads in the Syracuse Gazette saying there's something exciting happening this Sunday morning at the corner of uh, Vine and Maple and have the church website or something like that. So uh, one reason that Marble was ahead of its time, I think, was in large part because Norman, v Norman Vincent Peale was ahead of his time. He would, he would use his books primarily. I don't know that they did any ad campaigns the way um, Arthur Calandro did with me, but certainly, um, Norman Vincent Peale used his his uh, best selling books as an amazing marketing tool for the church. Yeah, and that kind of breaks down to like, I guess you could ask the question: just what is advertising, right? Because, like, in some sense, yeah, we have a very like you know we have a whole industry in the U.S. and and other parts, uh, most parts of the world now. Um, dedicated to it but essentially advertising is just like you know uh it, it's 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 either selling something or even just um saying that something is good and that someone should try it or do it or buy it right well you have to, you have to understand the difference between advertising and marketing and when when people use the word advertising they're generally speaking about paid media which means TV, radio, print, billboards, um, brochures, right? Something that is you, you have to buy to put your message. Marketing goes beyond that. Marketing could include word of mouth, right? Marketing could be going, being an author and going on a, a press tour, a speaking tour, talking about your book and mentioning your church. Or publicity is another aspect under marketing. And certainly uh, with the internet, you have social media, which just opens up a whole nother channel of marketing. So what I was doing specifically, what I was specifically asked to do with the church was an ad campaign. But um, uh, for any organization, product or service to be successful, it involves more, more than just advertising. In fact, now, very little money is going toward traditional advertising. More of it is more broadly spent on other marketing channels like word of mouth and like social media and Instagram and all these things, which are more, uh, you know, under the marketing umbrella than, than traditional advertising. So again, this is another course in advertising and marketing I'm giving you. That's actually really helpful, I think, even in this discussion, because in that sense, all churches market, I think, is a fair statement. Because by by definition, you would have to. <laughs> like you like a church wouldn't make very much sense if I, I mean I guess there if you were maybe like a really isolationist cult or something. But um 
that yeah all churches market and then many churches advertise is probably the the way to say that i'd say the more savvy churches market well and do it proactively you know um but again it takes someone at the top that understands the value of marketing clearly joel olstein understands the value of marketing right, right. uh Back in the '80s, when you had uh, pre the the precursors to to Joel Olstein, the Robert Schulers and Norman Vincent Peale, they may have been ministers first, but very close behind that, they were very savvy at marketing. And how they learned that, I don't know. Uh, but had they not be so as successful at doing that, you know, through their books and whatever other swag they were selling. Uh, during their their media buys on TV, there would always be some book or some trinket you could get. You know, they knew how to they knew how to market their church, and you don't need to have a, a lot of dollars if if you just have good marketing instincts. You got to know how to do that. There were ways to do that. You know, with 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 very small or non-existing uh, advertising budgets, you could still. It's called guerrilla marketing. This is again. Another term, guerrilla marketing, where you just have to be what you don't have in dollars, you make up for um, creative thinking and out of the box thinking. Yeah, well, and if in a sense, you know, I talk a lot about conversionism, right, which is like the theory that um, basically an essential part of your faith is you have to go convert others. Um, And that lends itself to people thinking like marketeers, right? <laughs> like, exactly. how do I get my friends into my church doors? Like, so it actually doesn't really surprise me that ministers have a natural or unnatural uh, knack for marketing because it's probably what consumes their mind a lot of the time. I I don't know for a fact, John, but I suspect that... Uh, the reason I got along so well with the ministers at church is because they probably felt the kinship mm. for the same reason that you just mentioned. Probably. Yeah. You know, when they're up there every week, you know, talking and giving their announcements and mentioning things going on at the church are basically, you know, sales. They're, 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 you know, they're public speaking and they're, they're promoting the church. And, uh, so I, I definitely agree with what you you say. They 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 appreciate the fact that they've constantly got to be, maybe not use the word selling, but promoting the church as much as they can. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I studied to be a pastor, and like, uh, you know, a lot of people might think that we would talk about marketing, but the craziest thing about the evangelicalism that I grew up in is we tried really hard not to. <laughs> it was like taboo because I felt like a, I, my theory of course, is that I think we were trying to avoid saying the quiet part out loud. Um, because I think there's a, obviously there's a lot of genuine Christians, good people. I don't, I try not to badmouth anybody, but, um, but the nature of the beast is such that in my experience, <laughs> you were, you were like, okay, how do we stay engaged with our congregants, right? Well, who else talks about engagements? Marketeers and, and advert ad agencies, right? Like that's who talks about them. Uh, or you talk about um, retention, right? How do we retain people? 
Um, and so it's funny because the language is is very very similar. Uh, it's it's almost impossible to do the hair split difference. Um, but like you said, yeah, I mean, there's not really a technical product, um, but there there's the gospel. There's the gospel message, which is again kind of what you're saying: have everything for nothing. Well, you know, advertising is very in your face, and I could certainly understand how many churches will think it's kind of cheesy to be out there, you know, hustling uh, their their church with any kind of advertising. However, as an evangelist, you know that part of the DNA of the that religion is that you are uh, instructed to go out and convince people to come to church. You know, there's a built-in sales force right there. Yeah. Yeah, go make disciples of all nations. It's international. It's, it's uh, you know, mission trips. What are, you know, sometimes mission trips are genuine attempts to provide aid. Um, but sometimes it's to make your church more appealing for someone who might never, ever get a chance to, you know, go out of the country otherwise. And again, like these accusations may seem veiled, but I what I'm trying to do is be just kind of honest with, um, you know, I, I think a lot of it's automatic and and uh, so um, self-sustained that people aren't thinking of it. But yeah, the parallels between between just marketing anything and just being a churchgoer or a minister, uh, they're they're really striking to me and they make me uncomfortable. Um, do you, here's a random question. Do you know why that's making me uncomfortable? Is there something like specifically so i know why that's making out no i don't <laughs> okay because <laughs> i i because i th- i think it just seems like there's something um almost it, it i again it feels a little almost snake oily right uh it feels a little bit like we we've got everything um but you can't see it or emperor's new clothes a little bit kind of it feels like that whether it actually is or not i think that's what makes me uncomfortable when i think about marketing and churches um well there you go well there you go i found it thanks (laughs) but uh do you here's a question do you uh you know i I watched your documentary well first let's circle back so you know we were talking about plot points and kind of you know you you grew up catholic and then you uh you know find this basically some motivation from the speaker and really uh, like what he's talking about you go to this church you develop relationships there and, um, you know, you're enjoying it, then you get this great opportunity to work on something you're passionate about. Um, well, your documentary is called Leaving God. So what happened? Well, you just has, you have to watch the film, folks. Yeah, I, I was like, question. he's not going to do He's he's, <laughs> he's too much of an advertiser. He can't give it all away. <laughs> Topdocumentaryfilms.com slash leaving God is where you can find it or go on Vimeo and type in leaving God or even more simple, just type in leaving God in Google. And I believe it might come right up. You might have to type in leaving God film or leaving God documentary. But when I do it, it comes right up. Gotcha. Okay. How's that for a pitch? (laughs) That's, that's a pretty good pitch. I, I like it. Um, I'll put. I will. I'll. I'll push for just slight more information. Did it happen kind of all at once, or was it a gradual questioning? No. Um, I will tell you that it definitely was not something that 
happen all at once. It was kind of a slow drip. Um, and it was really motivated by my own desire to understand things, to, to better understand religion and God. Um, I've always been a curious person and I've always been highly uh, curious about the big themes in life. And what are the big themes? Uh, money, work, health, sex, and God. I mean, if I had to, if I had to break it down to, you know, five of them, is that five? I think it's five. Um, I wanted to know and understand as much about all of those things as I could. So um, the more I began digging to use a uh, um, anthropological term, uh, the more um, I started to discover things that to me do not make sense. Um, and so it, you know, it, it kind of happened over a period of time and I, I do mention it in the film. So, um, I would encourage your, your uh, listeners to check it out. I think that's really common too, right? Like I, obviously I interview a lot of people who have left. Um, and yeah, people, people who are still, christians and they'll even ask me sometimes or they'll ask that same question what happened and i just kind of roll my eyes because i'm like what do you mean like you think a day just happened and then i was like all right i switch i'm just gonna change everything i believe no it's usually pretty gradual um so yeah but uh there's there's this thing you point out in your documentary that i've talked about with uh, other people a lot too is that people are leaving churches right and leaving god in higher numbers in the u.s um, but I have spent a lot of money and time studying enough Christian history to know that churches, if they can do anything, they can adapt. Um, so how do you, how do you think churches might adapt in the future to try to win more young people? I don't know if I want to be giving advice about things that I don't think, um, should be done. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Don't worry. I, they're not I, listening. Uh, uh, yeah right yeah how many how many churches are listening to um the cult of christianity probably not a not a lot right they might um, you never know they got ears everywhere it seems but yeah they, they might you never know right um well you know you just have to evolve you have to take advantage of um the way people communicate and as you know being much younger than me with social media things change every week um, you know, it used to be uh, it, it used to be MySpace, and then it was Facebook, and now Facebook isn't cool anymore. And you know, it has been Instagram, and now that's that seems to be the the app of the day. And uh, uh, now there's TikTok, and that's the app of the day. And uh, next month there'll be something else, right? So uh, it it really it all boils down to who is your audience, who are you trying to reach. And then effectively uh, using those the interfaces where those eyeballs are, or those those ears are. In this case, a podcast. I mean, podcasting. My goodness, in the past uh, two or three years, has exploded. I think I think 
the pandemic may have been one of the best things to happen to uh, podcasting because there are people like you that uh, uh, just in the past two years, right? You've been doing it a year and a half or something since the podcast. I -hmm. have just exploded. Um, And, you know, this, you know, you may not have a huge audience right now, but uh, over time, um, I think a lot of these podcasts are going to be connecting with a lot of people, especially if they have great shows like this one. So um, go on about how great I am. Keep keep, keep doing that. (laughs) I I enjoy that. Uh, Yo, I I completely agree. Yeah, there's 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 Christian TikTok. There's Christian Instagram, you know, like that's those are things that already exist. Yeah. and I, I think they're and they are always right on the ball. Um, even when I try to, you know, book a uh, guest for this podcast that has Christianity in the title. Um, yeah. <laughs> Any anytime I'm trying to look, I uh, my algorithms think that I am the just um, biggest Christian in the world <laughs> based on exactly. the yeah, which shows the algorithms aren't quite perfect. Um, well, that's why you need you need to, I think, uh you know, one of the things that I don't miss about being in the business right now is that it almost seems to be, I don't know if this is, this is true, but almost seems to be that it's less about creativity and more about analytics. It is. It almost it seems is. like you'd be uh, more successful marketing if you're a mathematician than an award-winning copywriter or art director. You know what I'm saying? It's wild. And I mean, even talking about podcasting, most podcasts, you know what they're about? Marketing your podcast. I mean, it's really nothing more than that. It's crazy. Of course. But that's what the algorithm likes. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Um, You know, I personally, my perspective is kind of like this. I think that churches don't necessarily sell a product but they want individuals to be their product. It's actually kind of like what social media does, right? They need users, not buyers. Like that's where their power comes from. And so the power is sustained by people uh, relying on them for community, for well-being, just kind of like social media does. There's actually a, social media and church are very comparable in my eyes. Um, well, I think that's always been the cases with church, you know, uh, that's what church does. It it gives you a sense of well-being. I think that's a great expression uh, to use for really the 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 the, the single um, biggest feeling that um, people get from going to church. Is certainly what I got when I you know if I had a crappy week, I looked forward to going to church on Sunday and seeing my friends and hearing a an uplifting sermon that gave me hope or inspiration. Um, it was definitely a sense of well-being. And that's that's a great thing to offer. When it's real. <laughs> that's where it, when it when it really is for your well-being. Um, but of course, you know, I have to get my sinister point of view in here. Like I think I think if there's any kind of marketing churches are like, it's like multi-level marketing um, where they simply got to convert people and tell those people to, you know, go convert others. And when you go tell others, um, you don't actually have to do anything productive. That's the thing, right? You don't have any requirements. Um, but is it, am I being too mean when I called churches a pyramid scheme? Is that too simplistic? Actually, I, I think that's a great, analogy especially when you're talking about evangelists the evangelicals right 
because that is part of that DNA to go out and convince other people. So the pyramid analogy is perfect. Well, thanks for validating that. I, um, yeah. And again, uh, you know, I, I've made this qualifier before. What I'm attacking is not usually people's personal faith, right? Like I'm very just concerned with systems and how they operate and whether, because systems, what I've seen them do to, you know, George Carlin has that great quote, right? Like I love and cherish individuals, but I hate groups they or that organize and who they identify with. Um, I have a little bit of that in me too. And I think churches are just sometimes this opportunity for the autopilot to switch on and then they're just selling nothing and it and it very quickly becomes more about power than anything else um power and control and so when it comes to marketing like am i against churches marketing themselves well no because i mean like that's what churches are as far as like they have to market themselves in order to be a church um and i'm not quite for the eradication of churches i think that might be a little too extreme um and you know, I want people to be free to believe what they want to believe. But it's probably worth having some caution. And I'm sure you working in advertising more broadly would say, hey, take note of when you're being advertised to or marketed to, um, because it's really easy in today's world to not realize you're being marketed to or advertised to. Right. And, you know, everyone has free will. So, you know, just because they uh, see some kind of a effort from the church that's can be considered advertising or marketing. It doesn't, you know, people are smart enough to, I mean, if you see an ad on a subway, obviously, you know, that's an ad, you know what the church is doing, but if it makes you smile, if it, if it informs you that there's a, uh, divorce recovery group at this church and you're struggling because you just got, got divorced you're going to be grateful that you just found an ad that was paid for by a church that informed you that you could, that there was an option for you to go to a group where you could uh, deal with some of your, your feelings about being divorced. Yeah. Which again, could go a great wholesome route, but could also go, go kind of a, you just, you know, you got hooked in before you even realized what was happening. I think both those, both those potentials are, are wrapped up in that. Well, you know, you, the title of your podcast is the cult of Christianity, right? Correct. And um, if you study how cults work, um, one of them being, I would call Scientology, and there's been some really great Definitely. documentaries great documentaries about that, you begin to understand how the parallels between a cult and churches are are very similar, right? Yep. It's a lot of similarity uh, between um, how, how they operate. So, um, and the thing about cults, if you listen to a lot of ex-cult members, is it's very seductive. You know, obviously, when they get involved with it, they don't think they're getting involved with a cult because they're doing things for the same reason that people go to churches, because it, it gives you that feeling, that sense we talked about earlier of well-being, right? 
It's a very strong draw. And that's what um, any cult does. It gives you a feeling of purpose and, and well-being. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something you don't realize often until uh, something happens. I mean, most people in cults, uh, I guess, don't realize they're in cults. They just live their lives being in that cult, right? I think it's, it's, it's the exception that people like Leah Remini um, are able to break, break out of it. I I don't know how they do. Yeah. But uh, you know, for the most part, be it a cult or, or any cult like religion, people don't realize that they're, they're kind of under that, that influence. They're almost being controlled by that. Right. Yeah. And that's why it's good to just take note. And actually why I'm very grateful you were able to come on and kind of break down uh, these ideas into very like simple, understandable ways. Because again, if you're part of the cult right now, that or what I call a cult, and everyone can define cult for themselves, obviously, but what I define as a cult, if you're in it right now, you might just, not only might you not realize it, I'm not actually here to tell you whether you are or not, but it's worth taking note about how you got to where you are. It's just, that's all, that's, and that, regardless of where you end up on the other side, it's just worth noticing if there are any patterns or if you were seduced or what happened. Uh, that's that's my only um, advice to people is just take note about where what your actions are communicating now and how you got to that point in your life and, and evaluate it and see if it is good for your well-being or if it's only tricking you into thinking it's good for your well-being. I'll just I'll just share some marketing perspective for you, John. I think the challenge uh, you're going to have with uh, that message and your podcast is a similar challenge to the one I, I have with my documentary, which is titled Leaving God, is that people are just going to uh, look at the title. And if they are believers or churchgoers, they're really not going to be interested Right. They're not even going to give you the opportunity or me the opportunity to listen to watch my film or or listen to a podcast because you've already turned them off just by the title. Well, and they've also been conditioned to resist outside ideas. Um, Right. Right. Um, You know, with my title, Leaving God, I, I kind of soften it a little bit or explain it a little bit by having the subtitle is which is why I left God and why so many others are too, to try to uh, make it clear that this isn't about God bashing. I'm not telling people to leave God. I could care less, really. A um, little bit harder for you with a title like The Cult of Christianity. <laughs> I mean, that- Right. Well, and it's funny too, though, because you know you, I've run into this problem multiple times. Actually, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because it's kind of meta. But, um, <laughs> but with the the cult of Christianity, uh, you know, it originally was a book, and the subtitle was "How Churches Control, Contain, and Convert." Because for me, I don't really care about people's personal faith either. It's all about what churches, in my eyes and in my studies, are doing, have done, and patterns, and. My perspective is if the title alone turns you off, then the content certainly will. Um, Because even though I'm very nice, uh, I'm not a mean person. um, 
it, it's true. Just like there, there's a conditioning block there. But the cool thing that I've run into with people who've reached out to me is said, thank you for saying the word cult because I didn't know how else to describe it. Um, because again, they're not even talking about their personal faith. They're talking about um, the their real experiences and how they were treated. Um, and yeah, like you said, there's just, there's a lot of parallels. It doesn't mean every church is like, you know, some salacious HBO Max documentary type cults. Most aren't. Um, but it does mean that the the way the systems operate can be very, very identical. Right. Yeah. And I hope I hope you're able to get that message out to um, people who aren't aren't already uh, having that perspective. Um, this is the problem I have with a lot of atheist-themed podcasts. It's p- atheists talking to atheists. Yeah, which, there's a lot of which, that. <laughs> which, you know, just saying how how smart they are. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, all these dumb Christians and we're so smart. Let's talk about how smart we are and how dumb they are. To me, That's not very yeah, to me, there's nothing more boring than two atheists telling each other how great they are and smart they are, right? Yeah. So I'll t- I'm um, glad you said that. I feel the exact same way. Um, not that I, you know, uh, some of my best friends are atheists, you know. So, but you know, my my goal, as much as I love li- being on a podcast entitled "The Cult of Christianity," my goal for 2022 is try to get on m- more a uh, podcast that don't sound like they're a- anti-Christian. Yeah. You know, that don't have some atheist theme in their title that are more about society and culture. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm very happy to say that over the next uh, two and a half months, I'm scheduled to be on about uh, nine more podcasts. Um, all of them are, are more uh, society cultural focused. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to those as well. But I'm looking forward to those too. Um, since we're about to wrap up, you know, where can people find more information about you and watch your documentary and all that good stuff and look forward to those podcasts? Uh, right. Thanks for asking, John. I think it's as simple as typing the words leaving God film in Google. Uh, I think I pretty much, with all the content that I put out about that, I think that pretty much. Will, will enable it to pop up, Leaving God Film or Leaving God Documentary. I think that's really all you have to do. Um, if you really want to uh, work for it, I guess you can go into, try to do the same thing in YouTube or Vimeo. I just don't think you need to do that. Just I would just say try Leaving God Film, Leaving God Documentary, and it should come up. Awesome. Yeah, this is this has been great. And there'll, there'll be a link in the show's notes too. John, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was definitely kind of a, a cool angle to approach uh, this topic of how churches operate. So thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, John. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. And thank you, listener. I hope you all have a good day. If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to thecultofchristianity.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider subscribing for additional content. 
For only five bucks a month, you'll have access to two additional shows, Parsing Propaganda, where I review and critique Christian content, and Art, where we try some amateur religious trauma therapy. Every subscriber becomes a part of something bigger than this podcast as we endeavor to hold churches accountable, speak the truth boldly, and most importantly, love others despite our pain. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.